0: This is a, uh, a picture of my parents. Um, it's a picture of my parents from October 19th, 1973. And I love this picture, these pictures, for a lot of reasons. First, uh, let's just acknowledge that this is so 1973. Um, and I love it for that. I mean, every bit of it. My dad's hair might be longer than my mom's in this picture. Um, I also love that they're so young here. It's fun seeing my parents so young. They're only 20 years old. Um, I'm over twice their age in this picture, which is, is kind of weird, to, but it's, it's a lot of fun to look at. One of the things I love about this picture, uh, you can see it right up here, it's really small. Um, it says, our wedding day. This was their wedding day, and not only was this their wedding day, these were their wedding clothes. Um, so they didn't get married in a church or in any formal way. They just went to a judge and got married. Uh, because what you can't see from this picture is that on their wedding day, my mom was already pregnant with my older sister. That's part of the reason they decided to get married. Um, you also can't see from this picture, or maybe you can, but my dad um, says that he was really, really high that day. Um, it's 1973, and, and that's what it was, I guess. Um, and uh, and what you also can't see is, although they, they're, they're happy and they're in love, and uh, by the way, October 19th just was Friday. They just celebrated 45 years. So mom and dad, if you're watching, congratulations. 45 years. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, but what you can't see also from these pictures... Um, through all the, the other stuff, is um, that there's a lot of pain here. And I would never speak disrespectfully of my parents. I would never dishonor them because they have been great parents. They continue to be great parents to me. Um, but here's what I probably love most about these pictures is that I can look at that and I can see their 20-year-old selves. I can see all of the, all of the hope and all of the, the excitement about their future, but I also can see what my parents were at this time when they were starting our family. They were young kids who were horribly lost. If you would have known the families that they grew up in, if you would have understood more about their households that that they came from, you you would understand more why I say that and I, I wish I could tell you all of it. There's just not enough time Uh, But if you knew all of that, you'd understand a little bit more. Uh, But here's what I I know about my parents, is that my parents, they wanted, as they were beginning their family, nothing more than anything else, they, they wanted to give us something better, to give our family something better than what they had known. But unless you've experienced better yourself personally, it's really hard to know how to give that to other people. Especially when you don't always have the most you know, wise and loving parents or other wise counselors in your life, when you don't have a loving community to surround you, to help you, um, especially when, and at this uh, time in my parents' life they didn't have this, especially when you don't have the knowledge of a loving, good, gracious, and directing, guiding Father in heaven. And so I look at this picture and I admire my parents, I love them, I, I appreciate seeing them this way, but I also understand that they were lost, which meant that the family they created was also lost. And although I came to know Jesus pretty young in life, I remember what it was like before I knew Jesus. And I remember meeting Jesus and, and learning about him and getting to know the character of God, but, but I remember, I know what it's like to feel lost in very real specific ways. I, I remember moments where there was violence in our house, and I remember cowering with my sisters in, uh, in a room or out of the way, and I, I remember what it felt like in those moments to have no one to appeal to. Just feeling like there's, there's no one who can come in and help. There's no one stronger. I did not know at that time that there was a God in heaven who leads angel armies that I could cry out to for help. And I think about moments when our electricity was turned off, or we lost other utilities, or a couple of times where we even risked losing our house. I remember what it felt like not knowing there was anyone I could cry out to for provision, that it was just all on us and no one was looking out for us. I remember what that felt like, and I had no idea at that time that I could call out to a God who was my provider and that He would shelter me. And I remember just being terrified as a kid um, that something was going to happen to my dad whether it was drug use, whether it was depression, whether it was uh, you know, something with the law. And I remember wondering what it would be like to be an orphan and who would look after us. And I did not know that there was a God in heaven who promises that he has his eye on the orphan's and the widows, that he loves to father the fatherless. And, and I remember growing up in this family and, and feeling the love of my parents and knowing they were trying their best and believing that. And that's been the most transformative thing in my life to just grow up knowing that I'm loved. And, and yet I remember thinking that families could be better, that they had to be better. There had to be a better way to do this. But I remember having no idea how that would ever happen because we were lost, struggling to find our way. And, and if you've never been lost, I mean, let's just be honest, we've all been lost, but if you've never been lost in this way, if you've never been lost for direction, if you've never lost your way and, and not known about the love and the direction and the guidance of God, it's natural to make some assumptions about people who are living that, people who have experienced that. It's natural to assume that it's their own fault. It's all about their own bad decisions. And to be sure, sometimes it is. Or it's natural to assume that that people who have lost their way or don't live under the love of God, it's because their hearts are hardened or they're anti-God or they're opposed to God. And again, sometimes that's true. Or it's natural for us to assume that, that people like that are a threat to our Christian way of life or our Christian values. And again, sometimes they are. But speaking as someone who remembers what it felt like to be lost... I can tell you there's a deeper reality, there's probably a greater truth going on in in most families like this, in most people's lives like this, that most people who have lost their way and do not know about the love of God to direct them, they simply don't know what's possible. They can't imagine what it's like to live life under the love, under the mercy and compassion, under the direction, under the power of a God of infinite possibilities. See, if you've never been lost like that, it's a hard thing to understand. But today, Jesus is gonna help us. We're gonna go to Luke chapter 15, uh, page 1047, in your pew Bibles if you're here in the room. Um, And in Luke 15, uh, Jesus is gonna enlighten us to something I think that's so important for us today. It starts off this way. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you learn something about Jesus, that Jesus was a magnet for people who didn't normally chase after religious teachers who didn't find themselves in synagogues or churches. Uh, it says here, tax collectors. Those are all your white-collar criminals. So the embezzlers, the, the people who think up crazy pyramid schemes, the money launderers, all of those people, they're, they're coming after Jesus. And not just them, but these other category of, of sinners too. So we're talking about the, the pimps and the prostitutes and the addicts and the junkies and the, and, the, and the petty thieves and the burglars. All of these people are gathering around Jesus because they've never heard they've never seen they've never experienced a religious teacher like Jesus before they thought they knew what that was they wanted nothing to do with it Jesus comes onto the scene and he's a magnet for these people and so they're gathering around to hear him not just to receive his handouts or to watch him do miracles I'm sure that was great but, but they wanted to hear him teach about this kingdom of God and then meanwhile, there's another group of people and, and, and they're called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here. These are the people who grew up in loving homes, who were raised by their parents well, who were taught to fear and love and respect God from an early age, who were taught right from wrong. The usual religious people. And they're also watching Jesus, not open to Jesus, but watching Jesus. And, and they're watching these people gather around Jesus, and, and this question comes into their mind, and it overtakes them. And the question is, what is this guy doing? He's welcoming sinners, you know, money launderers and, and crooks and pimps and prostitutes, and, and, and he's welcoming these sinners, not just to listen to him, but, but he's sitting down and eating with them. And these people are so, like, He he must be doing something wrong. There must be something going on because these kinds of people don't gather around religious teachers and they're bothered by this because they don't understand what it's like to feel lost. But Jesus, knowing that this is going on, um, sets out to teach them. He goes on and he begins to tell a story. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them repent so so they don't understand what's going on with these sinners and tax collectors. but Jesus tells them something they can't understand a story about a shepherd and sheep and and that's what a lot of these people do for a living that's part of their culture and he tells them that story and before anyone can ask questions or seek clarification he launches into a second story right away or suppose a woman if 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 you're not familiar with what it's like to be a shepherd maybe you can relate with this or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And if this doesn't connect with you, just imagine that it's her car keys. (laughs) Anyone been there this morning? Anyone? Um, Right? So, um, and when she finds it, she calls to her friends and neighbors. Uh, She calls them all together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in in both of these stories, there's something lost. There is a finder of those lost things. They find what's lost. They're they're so delighted to find it. But not only are they delighted, they take it a step further and they gather their whole community around them. And together they celebrate that the lost thing has been found. Now, I'm sure that the uh, teachers of the law and the Pharisees are sitting there listening, saying, okay, that's sheep, that's coins. And before they can ask questions or object or say anything else, Jesus launches into a third story. And this one's the clincher because it's not about sheep. It's not about coins. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, this new inheritance, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and then he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, wait a minute, how how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. In the other two um, parables so far, there's that, there's that line that the heavens rejoice or the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. Here Jesus shows us what repentance looks like and it's, it's, not this, it's not this complete coming clean of everything you've done wrong. It's not a pledge to never do anything wrong again, to completely leave your wicked ways behind. It's this moment when um, lying in a pig pen, starving, a memory stirs. And you think, whatever I might find in my father's house, what, whatever he might say to me, whatever I might experience there, even if I'm just hired there as a servant, it's got to be better than this. Repentance is a change of heart or mind, and it's, it's a turning away from God toward God. Saying, I don't know what I'm going to find there, I, I don't know what this means, but surely Life has to be better there than what I'm experiencing now. So he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Here's the rest of the speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So, uh, so far this story feels a lot like the others, except it's kind of different, isn't it? Uh, One of the things I love about this series of parables is that in each case, the thing that got lost presumably became lost in a different kind of way. The sheep must have just wandered off. It didn't know what it was doing. It was just a sheep. It it got disconnected from the flock. The coin, that was probably lost because the woman wasn't careful. I mean, coins can't move on their own. So there was some negligence there on the part of the owner. The son, there is an intentional act of disobedience. There There are some bad personal decisions that he makes that leads him to this place. But you know what? No matter what, no matter how the thing got that way, how it got lost, doesn't matter. Not to God, not to Jesus. Now the Pharisees, they think it matters. And in fact, maybe we think it matters too. And there can often be a lot of judgment around those who have, uh, have lost their way. In fact, there's a Bible teacher, his name's Mark Allen Powell, and he went around telling this parable, this story, teaching it all around the world, and he taught it to Americans, and, and he asked this question. He said, "What?" what happened um, that caused the son to live among the pigs how did he come to be there living among the pigs starving what took place and he asked American Christians and you know what they said of course you do because you're American Christians what would be your answer I hear you louder yeah he made bad choices he squandered his wealth in wild living right and then he went to Russia and he told that same story to Russian Christians and, and he said, how did he come to live in the pig pen? And you know what they said? They said, because there was a famine in the land and there was no food. And then he went to Tanzania and he asked some African Christians, hey, how did this man come to be in the position that he was? And they said, well, that's because the community wouldn't feed him. No one would give him food to eat. Who's right? You're perceptive you saw that the text said all three that he squandered his wealth in wild living then there was a famine in the land and he began to be in great need and no one would give him anything to eat so he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating all three are true and yet and yet for us we so often look at people who have lost their way and we look at them with such judgment i don't see any judgment here i don't think it matters much how people became lost it doesn't really matter The reality is they're lost. And and in any case, uh, this young son, he's at this rock-bottom place, and a memory stirs, and the memory is of his father's house, the generosity of his father's table, the kindness of his father, the graciousness of his father. And so he decides he's going to turn toward home, and he's going to ask for his father's help, because whatever he finds there, it has to be better than where he is in that moment. And now watch this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I want to ask you right now, what do you observe about the heart and the character of this father? Go ahead. What do you see? Love. What else? Compassion. yeah. Forgiveness. Yeah, I, I love this. That. Um, here's here's another thing I see. That um, presumably, since the day his son has left, the father has been perched at the head of that road, watching. Because while he was a long way off, his father saw him. That means the father's been waiting. And so here you have this watching, waiting father who is filled with compassion, not judgment. Even though his son made a lot of mistakes and bad things happened, there's no judgment in him. There's only compassion for him and I. And and, and he's got this deep, unconditional love and forgiveness. He runs to his son, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. And then the son, he's been working hard on this speech, so he's got to get the words out of his mouth. Here's what the son does. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And, and so he puts it out there, Father, I, I've made a big mistake. And, and it's almost like the father doesn't even hear that. He's already got in mind what he is going to do. And, and so the son is, is not even through his whole speech. He doesn't even get to the end of it. The father's saying, "No, okay, it's okay, it's okay." look what he says. The father said, servants, quick, Bring the best robe. Notice he doesn't say, I need some time to think about this, son. You, know, this, you hurt me here. This is gonna take me a little while. You, you gotta give me some time and space. No, there's none of that. It's, it's, it's quick, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found so they began to celebrate and this parable turns out the way the other two before it did. The, the finder finds his lost thing and he's so glad or she's so glad, he's so glad that, that he rejoices and not only does he rejoice but he gathers everyone he knows together and he says rejoice with me. Something great has happened. My lost thing has been found. Except this isn't the end of the story uh, the story goes on. This, this part of the parable, this uh, third parable, has uh, another section. And I think it's a really important section. I, I think there's some questions that we need to wrestle with today from this. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, the older brother. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back now safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The father had two sons. And what we see in this moment is that both of them are lost. Sure, the younger son took his inheritance and he went away and squandered it and he ended up hungry and starving and feeding pigs, which is something no good Jewish person would ever do. Frankly, no disrespect to any of you who raise pigs, but if you've ever been to a pig farm, you understand. And he suffered miserably and then he came home and and yeah, he was lost. What we see here is this older brother is just as lost. Because he never left home He never squandered all of his stuff. He didn't get into a bad decision, but he has completely lost the heart of his father. He's lost sight of who his father is. He's lost sight of what their house is all about, how he was raised. Do you see how he describes the father, his reality? He says things like, Here I am slaving away from you. In other words, Father, you're nothing but a slave driver. And I've always obeyed your orders because you're a guy who just barks orders around to people and you expect to be obeyed. And uh, you're not a generous father because you never gave me anything, never even gave me a goat. And you're not about celebration because you never gave me anything so I could celebrate with my friends. See, see, the son, he's so lost. He's, he's describing his father in a way that doesn't even resemble his father. You see the father? That's not who this father is. That's not consistent with the picture of a father who's waiting and watching for his lost son to come home, and when he sees him way down the road, runs and wraps his arms around him. That's not uh, gelling with the picture of a, of a father who, in the middle of a great celebration, a great party that he's throwing for the return of his lost son, goes out to to plead with his older son. And yet this image in the older brother's mind has become fixed of of who his father is and how this whole thing works and he's become completely lost. He's lost sight of his father. Notice the lack of resemblance between the older brother and his father. We need to see this. That the father, he's been living his life watching, looking down the road, waiting for his son to return. The older brother, on the other hand, has no idea that his younger brother has even come home. You see that? No idea. In fact, it's not until he hears the sub-wolfers pumping and he sees the conga line going that he grabs a servant and he says, what's going on here? And the servant tells him, hey, your brother's come home. But it's not that the older brother's too hard working, He's out in the fields working. It's not that he's just not very aware as a person. The reality is the older brother doesn't care about his younger brother. When his younger brother left the house and probably even before, he had written him off. And for the older brother, life is better without troublemaking younger brothers in your life. See, the father watched and waited every day for a sign that his son was coming home the older brother he had moved on we see that in the father the thing the father loves more than anything else are his sons both of them and yet the older brother what does he love he loves honor and respect and being respectable. He loves the status quo. He loves uh, being the good son, being seen as the good son, being seen as faithful, being seen as heroic, being seen as better than his deadbeat scoundrel of a brother. It's not a story of one lost son. It's a story of two sons who have both become lost. And I want you to see how the father responds. One more time, he pleads. My son, the father said, You're always with me. And everything I have is yours. By the way, this is not just an exaggeration or hyperbole. This is true. Remember, the inheritance has been divided between the two sons. And it's been given to them. So the older brother, he now is is in possession of the larger share of the inheritance, that's how inheritance laws works, uh, because he's now responsible for taking care of his father. So this is not just, hey, Sunday, son, all of this is going to be yours. The reality is that the father is often already, I should say, already given the inheritance also to this older brother. Everything that exists now belongs to the older brother. It's his. What is he missing about this? The father gave it freely. And yet, here's what the father says. He says, but we had to celebrate. I had to act on our behalf here. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And the story ends. Unresolved. We never really know how the older brother responds. Jesus just ends the story there. And and when Jesus does this, when he ends a story like this, it's usually because he wants to leave us not just wondering what happened, but but questioning um, ourselves, looking inside of ourselves and asking some important questions. Here's the first, I believe, we're to ask ourselves today. When something is lost, what are you willing to risk to find it? When something is lost, what are you willing to risk in order to find it? The shepherd left 99 sheep in the open country. He risked the 99 to go after the one. The woman risked the nine coins and the stability of her whole house and and probably the anger of her children and everything else to, to go and find that one lost coin. The father in the story, he risked all kinds of disgrace. He risked mockery. And we're talking about an ancient Near Eastern culture. Where this father is an elder, elders, elders are dignified people, you know, they sit, people come to them, and, and here he, he hikes up his robe, and he, and he runs to this son who has been living out in the fields with the pigs, and he wraps his arm around him. Can you imagine the gossip in that community? Can you imagine the unkind words that people spoke against that father? Can you imagine how people judged his parenting and they judged his conduct and behavior and they shook his head and they said, you know, the old man has lost his mind. But the father in the story, he risked all of that. More than that, you know what else he risked? He risked the alienation of his older son in order to embrace his younger son. And all of these stories, they stand in for for something true or something bigger that we're supposed to get our arms around. And it's about what Jesus risked to find lost people like us. He came running into our planet with arms wide open, willing to embrace us in our stench, in our soiled place. While, While we were a mess, while we were not even looking for him, he came to embrace us, to love us, to help us find our way. Because he is the way and the truth. In the life. When something's lost, what are you willing to risk to find it? See, as the people of God, we we are supposed to do likewise. We are called to risk something too, which too often I think makes us feel bitter. I hear it from us all the time. I know we're all focused on the lost, I know that's important, but what about us? What about the saved? What about the other part of our mission statement that says we have to strengthen the saved? When the focus is on the lost and and it's upon us to give things up, to risk things, to sacrifice things, it's easy for us to get bitter, but it doesn't really have to be that way. Because here's the truth. Although there's some sacrifice required for finding the lost, there's always going to be more joy for us. I mean, think about our church. Think about, think about the joy that lives here. Think about last week and hearing all those stories in inspired service. If you missed it, go watch it online. I defy you not to feel joy in your spirit as you watch that. Or, or the three people who were spontaneously baptized last weekend who are ready to start a journey with God, who have lost their way and are now back home. We're the hundreds of people who've begun a journey here in the last year. We're being on Outreach 100's fastest-growing list. Being 167 years old and yet being a thriving intergenerational church—there's joy here. But you know what the secret sauce is—the the magic ingredient in our joy. It's it's not the preaching. It's not the the music. It's not all the great amenities that we have as a church. I'll tell you what it is. It's that for decades we have been a church who is unapologetically focused on the mission. And Steve Hauer said it for 30 years as our leader. He said, the church is not the mission. It's been established by God to accomplish the mission. The mission is, does anyone know? It's, it's lost people. And if I've failed you in any way, it's probably because I haven't said that enough. I have not said that often enough over and over again on repeat. See, if you want the joy and everything that you love about this church, everything that's special about this church, if you want it to dry up in a quick minute, I'll tell you, only one thing you have to do. Only one thing we have to do. Stop being people who are all about finding what's lost. Because I know there's sacrifice involved in the mission. There are things that you risk in order to pursue the mission. But here's the promise. It shouldn't leave us bitter. At the end of the story, there's always joy. The shepherd returns with his sheep and there's joy. The the woman finds her coin and there's joy. The father throws a party for a son and there is joy. See, I understand that I'm asking us right now as a church to sacrifice something. Next week, we have a big vote to lay down a name that some of you have known for your whole lives You've known for decades that you that you have loved, that you have lived under, that you have served under, that you have a name that you have done great things under, and I know that's a sacrifice. Please, I understand, and I know it's a risk. And some of you are looking at me and saying, "Why would we risk this? This seems so foolish." But I'll tell you, when you find what's lost, when you make this your mission. Yeah, there's sacrifice. Yeah, there's risk. But there will always be more joy. I don't want your hearts to get bitter about this. Because in the end, there is a promise of joy for us if we keep focused on our mission. Which actually prompts the second question I think we're supposed to ask ourselves. And I think this is a big one. Whose heart do you possess? And there are only two options for your answer. The answer is... Are either multiple choice A or B, the father's or the older brother's. That's it. Whose heart do you possess? Is it the father's heart or is it the older brother's heart? Now, you know what makes me sad? What makes me so sad is that for some reason, in our churches today, plural in our churches, in the American church, the heart of the older brother has taken root. And we wonder why the church in America is dying. And so often we blame the lost and we say, you know, people just don't, they don't fear God anymore. They don't, they don't care about God. They're, they're, they're godless and they're anti-God and they have no respect and no fear and no love. When the real problem is we have let our churches become houses of the older brother. And I'll tell you something, no one wants to hang out with the older brother. That prodigal son laying in the pig pen, starving, wishing for a better way of life. Do you notice who he didn't ever think of or mention once? His older brother. He didn't say, You know what, I'm in a bad way, let me just call my older brother. He's always good for, for help. No, of course not. Instead, who did he think of? He thought he thought of his father. And he said, you know, even, even, even if he makes me the lowliest of servants in his household, I will be better off in the house of my father than where I am right now. And so he heads home, not because his older brother lived there, but because his father was there. And yet somehow, some stra- for some strange reason, we have let our churches become houses of the older brother. And so, and so now people in our community... They can't even imagine, no matter how lost they feel, no matter how much they need help or direction, they can't imagine that when they, when they come into our churches, if they were to, if they were to walk up our sidewalk, they can't even begin to imagine that, that the Father would come bursting out of the doors and, and run to them and put his arms around them and say, welcome home, let's have a party, you were lost and now you're found and I'm so glad to see you, that the Father would embrace them. They can't even begin to imagine that he would. Instead, most people in our community, you know what they imagine? They imagine that if they came up and knocked on our door, uh, the older brother would answer, because this is the reality in most churches, the older brother would answer and would say, what are you doing here? For some reason, we have, we have just become known and seen, and I think that's the reality of too many of our churches. We've become, we've become houses of the older brother. And this is a side note, but it's an important side note. When, when, when people in our community who don't know much about us, when they hear the name St. John, which image do you think is more likely to come to mind? The picture of the father who breaks out of the front doors while they're a long way off and puts his arms around them and says, welcome home, even while they're still covered in pig shit. Or do you think they imagine that they'll be met by the smug self-righteousness of the older brother? We don't have to wonder. We already know. And the thing I love about this church is that we're so different from those other houses. We have made courageous decisions for 167 years that we will be a house that that emulates, that lives out the love of the Father no matter what. I love this church because it's a lot like a church I knew in Ann Arbor, Michigan. A church that was, in a lot of ways, the laughingstock of the Christian community there because they were so different in how they lived and how they loved, and yet it was that church, a church that, that just so many older brother churches, but there was this church in Ann Arbor and it just exuded the spirit of the father. St. Luke, Lutheran Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that was the church where my family finally found a home. And where we began to find our way, that was the church where my dad, a man who had been so hurt by the the self-righteousness of the older brother, finally believed that he could be, finally believed that he could belong. And it changed our family's life. We found our way. And I love this church because our heart is just like that. And we've probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of times made the decision over and over again that we will not be the house of the older brother. That we will say to our community no matter what you think of church, no matter what you think of other places, the older brother, he doesn't live here anymore. That this is a place where you can expect an embrace and a celebration and a welcome home and much rejoicing. And before us next week, there is, a, there is a decision before us to lay down a name and to pick up a name that communicates that this is a place that lives out the heart of a father. A father who wants to help his children find their way to Jesus who is the way. And you know what I'm convinced of? And part of the job of a leader is to get to get to the destination first. You know that, right? So if some of you are still aren't there yet, that's okay. That's normal. And I'm going to be praying for you this week that you can get there. But if you're not there yet, I'm going to ask you to trust me because, because I've had more time on this. And it's kind of my job to get there first. But here's what I believe on our behalf. That if we're willing to do this thing, if we're willing to be courageous and to grab onto the heart of the Father and not allow the attitude of the older brother, the heart of the older brother to take root in us... And the Father will send to us people of every walk of life who are tired of doing life the way they've been doing it, who are searching for a better way. And they will find the way. They will find life here. And they will experience the embrace of the Father through us. And we will see people come to life in droves. Not because we're special, but because the Father's heart will reside here so strongly that people will be drawn to it. And I know there's risk. I know there's sacrifice. But can you imagine the joy? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for being the Father who runs after us, who does not require us to clean ourselves up, to get our act together, to make heartfelt speeches, to prove ourselves. Thank you for seeing our first intention of return to you, our longing for something better. And thank you for meeting us on that path, finding us, embracing us, and bringing us home. I thank you that decades ago you began a pursuit of my family and you didn't quit until each one of us was brought safely home Father give us the courage as a church to embody your heart Give us the courage to risk and to sacrifice, knowing that it doesn't have to end in bitterness. It always ends in joy. Give us the courage to embrace and to seek and to rejoice whenever someone finds their way. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done through him. Thank you for what you continue to do weed out the heart of the older brother that wants to creep its way into us. And Father, renew in us your heart and your heart alone in Jesus.